I'd like to invite everyone to turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be reading from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up my, thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto you, Take up your bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. Now, uh, Pastor Stan will bring us God's message. Take up thy bed and walk. Take up thy bed and walk. I'm going to tell the story that Jesus told here and, and try to explain why as we take, it, take our journey through the Gospel of John to try to understand a little bit about what's taking place. Some things are going on beneath the surface as typical with John that oftentimes we can't quite catch unless we somehow can get that figured out. Bethesda. It means Beth, house, and also... Hesda, mercy or grace. In the 8th century BC, a dam was built across the short Beth Zeta Valley, creating a reservoir for rainwater. A rock cut channel brought a steady stream of water into Jerusalem. That's the origin of this pool, way back in the 8th century BC. This reservoir became known as the Upper Pool, and you can see that mentioned in the Old Testament in 2 Kings and also in Isaiah. Around 200 BC, a second pool was added to the south. 13 meters deep. 
Now, you can see a picture today on the bottom. The one on the bottom is what it looks like if you were to be in Jerusalem today. You look down and you can see it's quite low and there is the pool area there. You can see columns coming up on both sides. It's all fallen apart, but today that's what it looks like. It's quite a bit different then. They have a model of Jerusalem in Jesus' day in the city, and this is what the model, the upper picture is. The Pool of Bethesda, you see that mark? You've got the upper pool and then the lower pool. It was quite a large thing with various different porticos all the way around it for people to gather. It's just a little bit, uh, it's close to the Sheep Gate. The first century BC, natural caves to the east of the two poles were turned into small baths. They became part of a Roman healing temple to the Roman god Asclepius. At mid-first century AD, Agrippa expanded the city walls that brought the pools inside the city at that time. And uh, you can see, again, more pictures today of what it looks like there. Now, after the Crusades, uh, the temple of the Roman god was replaced with a church named in honor of the supposedly grandmother of Jesus, St. Anne. My wife sang in that church when we were over there. It's got perfect acoustics. Unbelievable. And I'd, I'd like to stay there all day and just listen to the sounds. What a building can do to sound is amazing when it's built quite right. That church was given to France and they built it, rebuilt it in the 17th century. You can see today that's what it looks like with beautiful acoustics. Now here's a little map of the city and you can see the area in the bottom right hand corner that's kind of white. That's the temple compound. Just below that, which is not shown here, is where David's city was at. And just above that, you see where it says St. Stephen's Gate? Uh, Stephen's Gate and the Sheep Gate are the same gate. And it was the Sheep Gate that they brought the animals in to be used in the temple sacrifice system. They would bring them in through that gate. It's closed today. Okay. Okay, what are we doing now? You know what? This is giving us... Um, oh, here we go. Now I want to talk about the setting here. The fifth chapter marks a major shift in John's uh, gospel. We have first in chapter one his prologue. Uh, he introduces his theology of Jesus during that time. And I want you, when you're reading the book of John, never lose track of the prologue in chapter one. He lays down the, the, the structure, the framework of what he's trying to accomplish in his whole gospel without telling you that in the very first few chapters, or first uh, paragraphs in the first chapter. Uh, uh, so keep that in mind. He will, the rest of the, of the book pretty much explains what he talks about there. In chapters 1 to 4, he launches into the ministry of Jesus with his disciples and with the Galileans and with Judah the temple cleansing, and with Nicodemus, and with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And so you see that he's, he's, it's mostly individuals that he's dealing with here in the first part. In chapter 5, also he's dealing with an individual, but it takes him right into the heart of a very violent rejection and hostility from his own kinsmen. And it started so innocently with the uh, paralytic that we just read about. Thanks, John. And you can see there are several different paintings of this on the web, uh, so you can pick which one you like. I think this was done by Harry Anderson. It looks like it, doesn't it? Yeah, and I like this picture. When Jesus saw this man stretched out by the pool and knew how long he had been there, he said, do you want to get well? 
You know, by all appearances, we think that this was just a happenstance. But when you hear the rest of the story today, you're going to realize this is amazing choreography from Jesus as he he ties the story with this paralytic with what the whole theological conversation that's going to come up after that. He uses this as an illustration to get to there. And it's just amazing how John tells us the story. Now, uh, it's about faith. Uh, When you're sick, sometimes it's really easy to lose faith. Right? You know, especially when it goes on and on. Now, this guy had been sick how long? Probably more than half of his life, 38 years. And you can imagine he spent a good share of that by these pools. It was a beautiful surrounding, but it was crowded, just crunched in with sick people. Would that be your favorite place to be? They were all desperate. They wanted to get well. There was this uh, legend about the first person in the water uh, got well. Remember, one of those pools was probably about 15 feet deep. It's not something uh, that you just kind of just waded around it. It was very, very deep, one of them. Okay, now let me talk a little about faith. This is what faith can do. It can provide evidence for things we can't see. Do we need that? Is it possible by faith that we can see a lot of things that we don't normally see? Is it possible that we should expect to have this ability to see things that are not visible every day of our lives? Faith does that to us. It gives us the ability to see things that's impossible for people that don't have it to see. And it's just as real. Elders, the Bible says in Hebrews 11, were able to obtain success in the church by by way of faith. And so here we are in a little tiny church in in, uh, uh, Fort Bragg, and sometimes we wonder how we're going to survive. And so the challenge to the elders is, you know, we can see what the church will be like, what God is telling us. We can see that. Faith gives us the ability. It's not just a dream. It's not just a hope. They saw reality before it became reality. Words create reality. All that we see are the result of simply God's words. There was no world. He spoke, and there was a world. There was no people. He spoke, and there were people. Right? He, there was no stars, no uh, bodies in the, in the atmosphere, and then there were bodies in the atmosphere, right? He also spoke and it all disappeared by way of a flood. Isn't that right? And think of the whole Bible. Think of how many stories in the Bible tell us this very fact that God can do things, unbelievable things, just simply because of a word. It's amazing. So, when you talk about spiritual thing, words have a tremendous amount of power because of what they can do through faith. Abel acted upon God's words. He became a righteous man. Now that meant he was fit for the family of God. He could have fellowship with Jesus. They could open up each other's hearts to each other and share a wonderful blessing. Enoch walked right into heaven by faith. Right? All of these are in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Noah, look at Noah. There had never been rain like that, never been a flood like that. You know, and, and I imagine he was mocked quite a bit for that. But somehow in Noah's mind, even though it seemed like an impossibility, he had already learned that if he listened to God, things are going to happen that would never happen if you didn't listen. And it became true. The whole world was changed in that flood. The atmosphere, uh, the planetary structure, all of it, I mean the... the, uh, the um, the continents, all of that was changed. Abraham heard God speak to him and he responded to his words and he became the father of a people. 
And that faith helped him to overcome all of his handicaps. And he had a lot of them. One thing I'm learning as I read through the Old Testament with a Bible study group that I'm with, I'm learning that I think the reason why the Bible was written, one of the reasons why it was written, is to tell us how horrible the story is. You know? You kind of wonder, well, why is this story here? What good is in this story? There are some places in the Old Testament you just kind of weep as you look at it because why do I even want to read it? But I'm, I'm beginning to feel that God is telling us the story. This is how they are. This is where I'm going to take them. Does that make sense? And what is the difference? It's faith. This is what I have to work with, and this is where I'm taking them. And it's astounding when you think about that. I think God got some of the most stubborn people in the world that he bonded himself with, right? Moses accepted his heavenly birthright, and look at him. He led the people out of Egypt. He led them right into the promised land. And where's Moses today? How many people on this list are in heaven? In heaven now. Well, the Bible tells us that Mo- Moses was taken, right? Moses was taken. And who else? Elijah was taken, and who else? Enoch. So you have to have faith even to take that journey. And so you can see there are so many here that faith became, it overcomes all things. Truly faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Well, the sick man said, Sir, when the water is stirred, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. By the time I get there, somebody else is already in. Now, he had believed in a legend. It's far better to believe in the Word of God, you know. So he's sitting there, and you imagine, year after year, month after month, all of this, and he just can't move fast enough. When, and how did the water get agitated? I don't think angels were doing that. God doesn't work necessarily that way. What was happening is under, underground springs would flow in and cause that agitation. And it could be, we know the power of belief is amazing, you know, that it brought some kind of healing to some people, or it could be that actually some people, God did heal them just simply because of their faith. So, he didn't have a way to get there. uh, 38 years, the man is sick, and he wants so very much to be made well. The room was filled with probably hundreds of sick people. Jesus walked into that pool uh, area, the pool of Shlom, he looked around and he picked this man out. Specifically. He's the one he's going to heal and you're going to hear why in a few minutes. Why he healed him. The first time, thing Jesus says is for this man to do something which he, which he could not do. Does faith always do that? Always. If our world was all perfect and we can manage everything ourselves, would we need faith? Praise God. I've told people recently that I am just so happy that I don't have to be in charge of my decisions in my life anymore. You know, I carried so much weight on my shoulders and was carried the responsibility. I tried to be faithful at it for years and years and years. And finally, at 66, by the way, today is my wife's birthday. She's joining me at the ripe old age of 66 today. So anyway, uh, I came to the conclusion, you know, that I wanted to trust God, not just for the virtue of trusting God, but I want to know and feel my actual experience how he's taking care of me. What a thrill that is rather than try to work it all out myself. Well, God, what are you doing? You know, I'm waiting, I'm watching, 
And he will, he's glad to do that. That's not presumptive. So <clears throat> he says, I want to be healed, but I cannot. I've tried. I've done everything I know. I've given up. I have no hope. Every day he was reminded of how bitter life was for him. The Gospel of John, the word faith, bestial, is found uh, 98 times. The corresponding noun is found, is not even there. Did you hear what I just said? The Gospel of John, when you find that it, only nouns, no, I mean only verbs, no nouns, it's done intentionally. So what is, what is John trying to say about faith? Active. You're engaged in it. That's the way he sees faith. You're engaged in it. You look at Paul, and most of the words for faith are in nouns. State of being. Action, state of being. Okay? So what does Jesus do when the man is so you know, desperate, 38 years, like nobody can get me in? Does he give him a pep talk? Have you thought about this? Well, if you only, you know, why don't you, you know, and then he... <laughs> Did he give him encouragement? Well, things will get better. You don't have to worry about it. Did Jesus do those things? Are those the things that you might do? You might be getting in the way of faith. Maybe that's why there's so little faith in the world. We try to fix everything ourselves. No, he doesn't ask him to exercise faith even. He gives him no assurance of divine help. This seems like so contrary to what we would expect. He simply asks him to do what he cannot do. Walk. He asks him to get up and walk. Now I would begin to think, if I didn't have faith in me, I'd begin to think, this guy's really wacky. Push him in the pool. <laughs> Something like that. But as he acted upon it, he received strength. Faith went to work right away, making a miracle take place. Now, nobody that has a critical mind, a critical mind meaning you can't accept it unless you can see it, is ever going to be able to experience faith. That places some real problems for some scientists, doesn't it? I mean, they need faith, but if they have a critical mind, you know, it may keep them from having it. All right, let's go on here. I'm going to tell you a story. We're leaving John, going to go to a story. All right? You see this lady in the top left-hand corner up here? Right-hand corner. Sorry. Her name is Mary Lemke. Do you know who she is? She's not alive today. But I remember reading about May Lemke in the Reader's Digest years and years ago. I clipped the story, and I kept it. And just a couple of, maybe a week or two ago, I told the story to the children out at our school in Willits. She was asked to care for a six-month-old six Leslie who was abandoned by his parents until he died. Mentally, he, well, he was abandoned. He didn't die. He was just abandoned. He was mentally retarded, and his eyes removed because of something wrong with his eyes. He had cerebral palsy. He was limp. He was totally unresponsive to sound or touch. She was asked to care for him until he died. That's what they say. Okay? Her reply is, if I take him, he certainly will not die. This is a woman of faith. She is a Christian woman. Now, can you imagine taking a child in that can't do any of the things that you would expect a child to do? She's only four and a half feet tall. She'd raised five children. She was 52 years old. 
She weighed only 90 pounds, a powerful believing Christian. She refused to consider Leslie a burden. Watch what happens. She taught him to suck. He didn't have the sucking impulse. By putting the nipple between his lips and then her lips near his, she moved the nipple and made sucking sounds, was trying to educate him to what sucking was all about. How do you teach a child who you don't know that anything is going on in there? How do you do that? She bathed, cuddled him. You see all the touch going on here? Talking and singing. She massaged his body, put his hands next to her cheeks when she cried so he'd experience what crying and tears were all about. Never once for years and years and years was there any response. Did that take faith on her part? There was not a movement, not a smile, no tear, nor sound. And if he didn't tie, if she didn't tie him, it's a she, to a chair, he would have toppled over. He had no control. Never reluctant to bring him out in public, he was her boy, her love. She was proud of him, a total stranger Now he's her boy. When asked why she didn't institutionalize him, when people said, you're just wasting your time with him, how did she respond? She snapped back and said, it's you who are wasting your time. Kind of like Jesus who came down to this hopeless planet and loved us and stayed with us until finally we came alive. Uh, This child, she says... This kind of child is brought around by kindness and love, not an hour or a month or year. Lasting kindness, she says. And in her prayer, she pleaded for a miracle. Slowly, uh, she learned how to, he learned how to hold himself up an inch, an inch himself along a chain link fence that she had built in the backyard. He had to hold on, you know, put his fingers on the chain link and just hold on. And he would stay there, shaking. Once Mary noticed him snapping his fingers against a string on a package. And an idea popped into her head. What do you think popped into her head? You know that. Oh, you know the story. Kind of like here. Music. She thought, music. Well, this gal's thinking. She's amazing. You see, when faith goes to work, ideas pop into your mind just out of the blue. Where do you think you got them? I think God is involved with that. Faith is his language. So she bought a piano. She sent her husband out. They bought a piano, brought it in. He still isn't moving. He still has unresponsive in every way, you know. And 19 years of loving this boy. Could you have done it for 19 years? 19 years. 52 plus 19, 71 years old. Did I get that math right? Wow. One night, she and her husband Joe were sound asleep, and they awoke to the sound of music in the house. No responses at all, no signs, very little at all that anything was happening. In the middle of the night, there's music. And she asked Joe, did you leave something on? He says, no. And they tiptoed out. It was total dark because he didn't have any eyes. Tiptoed out, and here was Leslie, 19 years old, 19 and a half, sitting at the bench playing perfect piano. Not banging with noise, playing fat, ma- amazing pieces because they had put it on record, playing records all the time so he could hear music. And the music was in his head and he, amazingly he didn't have to practice. It just came out of those fingers that could hardly hold him up. Isn't that amazing what faith can do? Amen. Crazy story. And um, 
He was playing perfectly. Next, he was singing as he played. And it's very interesting. I've heard him. You can go on the website and you can look up Leslie Lemke. And they actually have him playing. And he sounds just like the artist. He mimics the artist that was singing, the tone of voice, the way they sang and all that stuff. He was singing Satchmo. (laughs) Anyway. Um, Then he began giving concerts and he was walking. And it amazed the world and the doctors know not how it happened. They just don't know. But is that any different than what happened in Hebrews chapter 11? The lives of people. And what happened that day at the pool of Bethesda when Jesus walked in and found a man who had been there 38 years? It's amazing what can happen. That day happened to be the Sabbath. Whoops, now here's the problem. Okay? The Jews stopped the healed man who was going around carrying his bedding and said, it's the Sabbath. You can't carry your bedroll around. It's against the rules. And here's one of those rules, Jeremiah 17. Thus saith the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day. And there's another one in Nehemiah chapter 13 says pretty much the same thing. The issue was trading on the Sabbath. Didn't want people carrying goods to trade with one another on the Sabbath. And so the rabbis argued uh, against carrying a burden. And this would include even if you had a needle in your pocket, that's a burden. Don't do that. Is that the way God is? Or is that the picture that men make of God? Are churches pretty good at doing stuff like this? Really messing with people. Nor could you have artificial teeth. That's carrying a burden. Or a wooden leg. Right. And ladies, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Are you wearing a brooch today? Brooch? How do you say this? Brooch? Yeah, that's what it is. <clears throat> to them, this is a matter of life or death. Now, this is crazy. Writing as much as two letters of an alphabet or erasing in order to make space for two letters, that was breaking the Sabbath. Can you imagine anybody even dreaming that up? Lighting a fire or putting it out was against the rules. Uh, but a Gentile could be hired to do it. That's okay. It was also counted, and that makes their neighbors unhappy, it was counted as Sabbath-breaking to look into a mirror fixed on a wall. I don't know why, but it was. Okay, I'm sure. An egg laid on the Sabbath might be sold to the Gentile, but not eaten. Because it's a result of work, and so it's bad. Right? Okay, you couldn't spit, (laughs) because it might fertilize the blade of grass, and ooh, you're working. Right? (laughs) One could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, unless, of course, it was attached to his clothing, in which case it was no longer technically a handkerchief, but part of his garment, and it's okay. Well, some rabbis spent their lifetime figuring all this stuff out. So, why did Jesus go to the pool of Siloam and pick this man out, and why did he say, pick up your bedding? Why did he tell him to do that when it was the Sabbath? Why did Jesus do that? He could have healed the paralytic on another day, couldn't he? No trouble at all, right? He did it purposefully on the Sabbath. He could have cured him without bidding him to bear his rug and blanket. He often healed people on the Sabbath. He's almost like in your face to these Pharisees and these rabbis. How many? Seven healings on the Sabbath. 
to confront the foolishness and wrongness of their teaching, which instead of drawing people to God, made God into a heartless tyrant. Now can you figure out why he did that? They had painted a wrong picture of God. He came to reveal God. So he is going to do what? Confront them. All the time he can. He's going to confront them on that because he wants to get them to see God differently. Their rules were twisting their ideas about God in the wrong direction. And he's going to unearth those rules. He's going to undo them. He wanted to present the Sabbath in its true light instead of binding it with foolish, nonsensical rules. And boy, did they have that. I like the statement in Desire of Ages. He had come to free the Sabbath from those burdensome requirements that had made it a curse instead of a blessing. Don't you like that? She just puts it so simply. Okay, verse 11. But he told them, this is the man who had been healed and been challenged by the Pharisees and the rabbis, you know, why are you carrying a burden on the Sabbath? Uh, He said, take your bedroll and start walking this. Excuse me, I backed that up, didn't I? The man who made me well told me to do this. That's what he said. Right? Wouldn't you dodge for cover if you lived in that environment? They're going to eat you alive, right? So he's dodging. But why, after such a long-weighted gift of healing, did he maybe get Jesus in trouble? Why the betrayal? Well, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple, and then the man returned to the religious leaders to tell them it was Jesus who made him whole. Do you like that about him? Does that bother you that he... Hold on, Jesus. Uh, He wasn't trying to betray Jesus. He was simply trying to explain that it wasn't his fault that he had broken the law. That's how oppressive those Sabbath rules were. To cause this honest man to betray his healer for fear of coming under their wrath. It's a normal response. Jesus didn't condemn him for that at all. The healed paralytic had no idea the intrigue, the plotting, the scheming that was going on regarding Jesus by them. Did they like Jesus, these religious leaders? He had already cleansed the temple once, right? They got him marked. And now they've got another reason to hate him. I like the expression on this guy's face, don't you? He's kind of mean looking. Yeah. And the light shineth in dark, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's how John begins his gospel. He is saying, Jesus came as light. And he came to shine, but nobody saw the light. They refused to see it. And he was telling exactly, this is what John says to introduce, and this is an illustration from the life of this man, proving it. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And this is a story to illustrate what John is saying at the beginning of his gospel. But as many as received him, To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you like that verse? John 1, 12 and 13. God welcomes questioning hearts, but cannot do a thing with closed hearts. All right. Now, you'll read also in John chapter 5 about this battle. The battle is on. He's been, the, the finger is pointed to him, and now the Pharisees and the rabbis are after Jesus. And Jesus is there in confrontation with them. 
And this is a theme of many of the chapters in the Gospel of John. We can miss some of the things that are going on if we don't take a careful look at it. The statement Jesus makes, my father worketh hereto and I work. They didn't like that. They think that he was making him out, himself out to be God, my father. Not just a generic term, but specifically very personal. That's the way they read it, and that's exactly what Jesus meant too. Now, does God stop his work on the Sabbath? Does he? I remember when I was growing up in an Adventist home, boy, there were a lot of rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. I'm not sure those rules would all pass the test that we're talking about here. It's a day of blessing to make our lives richer, fuller. Therefore, we should do our most to help people on Sabbath. Other work may be laid aside, but not the work of compassion on the Sabbath. Got that? And that's what Jesus was trying to straighten out. And then he goes to some verily, verily statements. You've seen those where the two words are side by side, verily, verily. He uses that three times in this chapter, verily, verily. And the first one says, be certain to pay attention. That's what these words mean. Be certain to pay attention to what's coming up. The son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the son likewise. We read some texts earlier about you know, faith enables you to have an insight that you couldn't have otherwise because God puts his agenda, his, his message into you. He helps you to see things that you would not possibly be able to see. Now, Jesus lived by that. I think every day he got three-dimensional live pictures of what he needed to do. Well, didn't he say that here? The Son of Man can do nothing himself, but what he seeth the Father do, what the Father is telling him to do. Right? Isn't that something we could expect? I think we need to expect that. You know, if that man laying there for 38 years would have did a little bit more expecting, you know, a little bit more visualizing, you know, maybe he would have seen something that would have helped him out. But Jesus used him to open a lot of people's minds. There is no greater duty than to relieve someone's pain and distress. And the follower of Christ must be like God. Okay, this is the uh, verily, verily number two. He that heareth my word and believeth on me that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now let's go back and look at the previous one. My father worketh hereto, and I work. That's the first verily, verily. I do what the father has told me to do. I am a special agent from him. He's making that real clear. And then he's coming here and saying, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Now Jesus is saying, he said, I and my father are one, basically he's saying. And then number two, he's saying, I have the power of life. He is venturing right on to the platform of divinity. Not a very safe territory with these Jewish people, these leaders. The Old Testament makes it very clear that the life comes from the Father. And I'm going to just go over all those, but there they are. Okay? And then he comes to another verily, verily, number three. I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall live. So Jesus declared, declared he's the Son of the Father. He is divine. He is a divine Son. He is saying that uh, he has life. He's got it. Same life that the Father has. He's got that, that control, that power of life. And number three, he's saying, I've got power to raise people from the dead. Wow. As one wouldn't be enough, 
He hit him with three. Boy, that's boldness. That's absolutely boldness. You could hardly figure out a way that Jesus could have done this. This took amazing kind of boldness. He's early in his ministry, and he's just hitting them straight on in every way possible. It's amazing what's taking place. And he's getting the reaction that he expected. But he's left us truth and changed some people's lives. So the father raised the dead. The Sadducees, the priests said, no, that's not possible. There is nothing, no afterlife. The Pharisees, they did believe in the resurrection. Now look at this. Dead bodies, the paralytic would have had a dead body, so to speak. It can come to life, right? Why can it come to life? Because the son of the father, the giver of life, was there. You can bring it back to life. Some people are dead because they've stopped trying. And I like this little passage here that I, could, uh, I want to share with you here. Um, uh, spiritually dead people have stopped trying. They just simply have stopped trying. They look all on all the faults as something that cannot be removed and, as, and all virtues as something that cannot be attained. Spiritually dead people have stopped trying. Are there any spiritually dead people here today? They have also stopped feeling, becoming desensitized to evil. They can't feel it. It's too painful, perhaps. Sorrow and suffering, feeling no grief and no pity. So spiritually dead people are people who have stopped trying and have stopped feeling. When compassion goes, the heart becomes dead. Spiritually dead people also, their thinking stops. Their desire to learn stops. They have no interest in new truth, new methods, new thoughts. They simply, uh, a disturbance that they cannot bear. Who is this talking about? the people that were condemning Jesus. So Jesus has actually picked this man out who was, quotes, dead, but alive, was dead. And he gave him it all back. And he is pointing out that he can make this happen. And he's talking to people who were spiritually dead. Their thoughts were dead. Their feelings were dead. And what was the last one? And they stopped trying. Now that describes a lot of churches and that describes a whole lot of people across the planet. And it's a problem because they haven't hung on to faith. For the Father judges no man. He has committed all judgment unto the Son. They were judging Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm the judge. Not just the Father. He has passed it on to me. I'm the judge as well. You see what he's doing? He took this story and he uses it to load his weapon to come right at these people. Isn't it a fantastic story? The way it all works, it's not just out there and, you know, not connected. In the Old Testament, judgment was so typically God that he was spoken of as judge of all the earth. Granting to the Son the power of judgment would appear to the Jews not only as impossible but blasphemy. However, later Jews did allow for the Son of Man the Son of Man. They knew about the Son of Man. Where did they hear about the Son of Man? Tell me. 
What Old Testament book talks about the Son of Man? It's a prophetic book, small book, starts with a D, ends with an L. Thank you. Daniel. Remember, you know, at a time when everything looked so bleak and Daniel saw these visions and he saw these terrible beasts and all of that, then he sees the Son of Man comes to the rescue. And the group of of, uh, Jews believed in this Son of Man coming and it kept the Messianic hope alive. And this Son of Man would come and he would pass judgment, they believed. This term has a long heritage. Daniel calls the Savior the Son of Man. The Jews understood this as a prediction of the Messiah. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That's what John says here. When Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was doing no less than saying, I'm the Messiah, and I will judge you. You judge me, I'm judging you. Pay attention to who you're talking to. The very miracle of the paralyzed man was a sign that Jesus was the Messiah. It was Isaiah's picture of the new age of God that would usher in amazing changes. The lame man leaping like a heart. And Jeremiah, the blind and the lame, would be gathered in. This is Jesus' favorite self-designation, son of man. He chose to use it more than any other, over 80 times, a term nobody else has claimed or has been applied to themselves. Stephen, the martyr in the Christian church, recognized Jesus as the son of man in his vision at the time of his death. So it's very important. Justice demands two or three witnesses. So Jesus presents his witnesses. He presents the Father. The Father had sent him. And he had presented also John the Baptist. He presented his own works. He presented scripture. I'm not giving you all the details because our time is gone. He, He also presented Moses. He doesn't just present three witnesses. He presents five. Jewish law said three. He presents five. He's got a full house, doesn't he? Uh, and so all of those he presents and they disregard it. It is just as John had said in the prologue. He was in the world and the world was made by him. The world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. They loved Moses, but they couldn't see Jesus. Moses loved Jesus. They loved Abraham, but they couldn't see Jesus in, in him, even though Abraham worshipped him. All of the ones that they accounted as worthy, they loved Jesus, but they were going to reject Jesus themselves. How strange. Uh, You can see that John chapter 5 was a carefully choreographed chapter. Now when you go back and read it, you can gain, I think, a whole lot more of what's going on. You can see how intentional Jesus was and how he tied his miracles with the stories that he was going to teach with the lessons that he was going to give. And it tells us such amazing things about him. It teaches us some things for us today. Particularly, I'm going to pull this back on because this really caught my heart. Maybe it did yours. You know, spiritually dead people are those who have stopped trying. Spiritually dead people are people who have stopped feeling. Spiritually dead people have stopped thinking. And that could just as easily happen to each one of us as it happened to those rulers. We can stand in the way and against God, even while we're here praising his name, just like they did. So it's a pretty powerful message for us to think of. Take up thy bed and walk is the invitation I give to you. You know, go out, 
filled with God's wonderful gifts of miracles in your life, all of the greatness that he's going to give to you and the power he's going to give, go out and live it. Be spiritually alive and see what God does in your life. It's going to change your life. It's going to change people's lives around you as you allow this to happen. Father in heaven, we thank you for John chapter 5. We thank you for this message and how it speaks to our hearts. And I pray your blessing upon us as we continue to read this gospel and go further and further into this man who was set so close to you, put his head just on your breast, and he understood you maybe more than anybody else. And you were able to give so much information to him, this wonderful gospel, the epistles, and also the book of Revelation that speaks to us in such powerful ways. And yet it also speaks sometimes mysteriously through symbols. And we need to take the time to unravel those things. They're not that difficult to do. But this gives us a clue today. The stories, the miracles were the clues of what the message was all about. So I pray your blessing upon each one here. May it be that all of us can go home with you when you come because we will have been faithful and true to you and will have chosen to act in faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.